I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, psychologist Paul Bloom talks about the role pain and hardship play in making us happy. Trying to be happy, focusing single-mindedly on pleasure, somewhat paradoxically makes people less happy, gives them less pleasure in life. And there's benefits, all sorts of benefits to seeking out long-term goals and seeking out difficulty and trouble and struggle. From running a marathon to eating spicy food, is our appetite for physical and emotional pain part of human nature? We are naturally prone in our imaginations to seek out things where everything goes to hell. And horror movies, I think, scratch an itch and it itches. I want to think really hard about what's going to happen when the world goes to hell, when there's chaos, when there's a killer on the loose. It may not feel like fun, but it's in some way to mind doing what it should do. It's just scoping out bad things and working on them. Paul Bloom on the role of struggle and strife in living a good life. That's coming up on Life Examined. For most people, living a good life would include love, fulfilling work, play, travel, and so on. A few words we might leave out are things like pain and suffering, especially if we have no control over them. But then, what if I told you that in order to live a fulfilling life, we actually need some level of chosen physical and emotional challenges and difficulties? Would you buy that? Because for centuries, pain and sacrifice have been part of the human story— Think of religious practices, days of fasting, prohibitions, pilgrimages, even self-flagellation. Suffering was humbling, showed devotion, and provided meaning. Historically, we've sought out the scary, from watching gruesome executions in the Middle Ages to Grimm's fairy tales. It's human nature, ingrained in our DNA, to seek out physical and emotional pain. The question of why people choose pain and suffering is taken up by Paul Bloom in his latest book called The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. The subtitle, Bloom says, was inspired by Viktor Frankl, an Austrian psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor who described struggle and perseverance as a central human motivational force. Paul Bloom is professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and professor emeritus of psychology at Yale University. He's the author of six books, including the latest one, The Sweet Spot. Well, Paul Bloom, it's great to have you on for the full hour of Life Examined. I'm excited to jump into this. So am I. Thanks for having me here. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about, um, and, and it's clear that we say this, that we're talking a lot about chosen suffering here oftentimes, um, not necessarily living with chronic illness or, or pain outside of that. But if we think about this idea of chosen suffering, I'm curious, do you find that this is a modern phenomenon, something that we like to do to ourselves, a new masochistic part of ourselves? Or is this something that's been going on forever, this idea that we need to push ourselves in the direction of pain to find pleasure and meaning and happiness? So first, I'm really glad you began with that distinction. I, you know, I, I wrote up a summary of my book on the Wall Street Journal, and right away I get an email from somebody who's furious at me and says, you talk about the benefits and the power of suffering, and I suffer all my life with this terrible illness. You don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, she's, she's right to make the distinction. You're right to, to bring it up at the beginning. Unchosen suffering, you know, the death of a child, chronic pain, being assaulted, is a very different thing. And I'm not necessarily in favor of that. I think I'm more skeptical than most about it. But chosen suffering is, is, is I think, part of a life well lived. And you know something? I, I, I think it, it is universal. I give all these examples, everything from BDSM to spicy food to religious ritual. And these show up everywhere. And these show up for as long as, as, long as we know. 
they, 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 people have always engaged in this. I think, I think if anything, we sort of maybe lost a bit of an ancient, some ancient knowledge here about the value of suffering and the value of pain. That's interesting because part part of me would think that here we are for, for some of us, and this is those in a, in, in a safe, privileged position. I, I feel that modern life has made us pretty comfortable. Uh, we love sitting in the warm hot tub and hanging out and just enjoying feeling safe. But but what you're saying is that there's a part of human nature that's always been interested in these questions of chosen suffering. Yeah, and and I've I've wondered about the sort of question or challenge implicit in what you just said, which is maybe our appetite for chosen suffering could just be because we live such pampered lives. We need to feel alive because there's no other source for it. And it's a plausible enough idea. But in fact, if you look at other times and other places, people always engage in, in chosen suffering, often stuff, you know, very, very gruesome, very severe, but often the sort of same thing that, that we do now. Um, as far as I know, there's never been a time when people weren't interested in stories that, that scared them in, um, in certain forms of control, physical pain and athletic competitions. Mm. It seems to be part of human nature. Talk a little bit about, um, I, I mean, I think of, of how this has shown up in, in pilgrimages or religious rites or ceremonies. I mean, even self-flagellation. I mean, there's a lot of early examples that kind of take me back to earlier times. There are. Um, you know, my, my book breaks up into two parts and I talk about suffering for the service of pleasure, like just, you know, like BDSM or mm -hmm. spicy food, stuff which is suffering becomes fun. But suffering could also for, fulfill other needs and religion is one context in which this happens, where people maybe in order to feel closer to God or to, to give their life some satisfaction or to show off their piety to others, engage in chosen suffering, sometimes, you know, horrible to, to a tremendous degree, people getting themselves crucified, for instance, uh, in certain rituals. Uh, but even those of us who don't go that far, all of the major religions involve suffering in sort of control doses, like uh, fast days, mm. or the regular prohibition against eating, eating certain foods or having sex in certain ways at certain times. Religion, I think part of its very structure, involves the deprivation of pain and the imposition of various forms of suffering and trouble. Hmm. Part of the reason I think we we have this sense of chosen suffering is that it brings us a life of meaning, which I'm really fascinated in. Um, and just so we kind of define some of these terms early on, how do we think about meaning? What is it? Yeah, that's a that's a toughie. Because uh, I, I, I do argue that suffering is done sometimes in the service not for pleasure but for meaning. And right. you know, what in the world is that? Um, I I don't try to answer the question by sort of doing a priori philosophy and just kind of thinking it up. I, I, I look at how people themselves describe meaning and meaningful activities, and they have certain ingredients. They tend to be, um, take a long time. They tend to involve difficulty and struggle, which is why they connect to suffering. They tend to have some sort of importance in that they, influence, they often influence the lives of others. They make a difference. Hmm. Often they're the sort of things one could tell a narrative about, a story. So... A very good example of a meaningful activity for a lot of people is raising children. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? I mean, it, to me, it's kind of fascinating how that is something that we know from studies, whether it's childbirth or the early years of children, is one that is really hard. It is full of suffering, and yet we choose it over and over and over again. I like that example because, you know, you're right. Um, psychologists used to use, there were several studies where psychologists, um, said confirm the idea that that's that having kids is bad for you it's bad for your pleasure 
It's, yeah. It takes away the fun out of your life. Um, it's difficult on marriages. It causes sleeplessness. It causes money problems. It causes struggle. And despite what some people might say, the time spent with young kids, if you, if you look at it closely, people don't enjoy it as much as they might say they do. So, so, and then many psychologists concluded that, well, suffer, having kids is a mistake. Maybe there's, a, there's other reasons to do it from a standpoint of our species, but it's an individual mistake. But I think there's a good reason to push back on it and to think that when people say, and I would say this, that having kids is, is you know, one of the most important things of my life, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not making an error. And I don't mean to say that they gave me more pleasure in some simple sense. What, what I mean to say is that they scratched another, another itch. They gave my life meaning. They gave it significance. I feel, I feel having kids is a value. Um, obviously, there's love and intimacy, and there's those connections. I think um, having kids is a nice illustration of a point that I argue for throughout my book, which is that there are many motivations that people have, and plainly pleasure, happiness, and like Include are some of them, but we have others too. And I, having kids again is a nice way of looking at that. Mm. I also like how how you frame this idea of meaning as as a story we tell ourselves, a story in which you know we we went to different places in our lives, experienced different emotions, not all of them easy. And I mean, to me, this could even be expanded out into almost like mythological terms, you know, uh, Joseph Campbell and, you know, the hero's way, the idea that we're, we're attracted to the dark places that take us to the light places. That's, those are often the stories we tell ourselves and others. I think so. I think when we ask ourselves, what's the sort of stories that we like, um, we can often answer by saying, well, what's the sort of lives that we'd most like to live? And the lives we like to live are ones that involve struggle and difficulty. So that often so we could look back and say, I'm glad I did that. There was a purpose to that. There, there was a, there, you know, at the time, maybe I didn't enjoy it, but I'm glad I did it as part of being a full person. And so when we, when we have our heroes or just any movie or any, any TV show we see, we like watching people struggle with obstacles. Mm. We like difficulty. We like trouble. You know, we, we like to see people win at the end, but it's not necessary. We, we could fully enjoy uh, a movie, I don't know, Rocky, Rocky Lost. Um, you know, yeah. We could fully enjoy something where as long as there's a struggle of the right sort, um, it could be intensely interesting to observe, you know, but, but it doesn't have to end on a, in a happy way. Right. And do you feel that we should be maybe instilling some of this in children. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of debates about how much suffering a child should be exposed to. Again, we're not talking about chronic poverty here, but just that it's so easy to be distracted into pleasurable things that perhaps, you know, a certain aspect of, of, of raising a successful person means exposing them to disappointment and to the fact that they need to get better at things. I think there's a real insight there. Um, we, even the most pampered people, though, the most pampered kids, are going to deal with struggle and suffering and yeah. disappointment. They're going to love somebody who doesn't love them back. They're going to be humiliated. They're going to fail at something they've tried at. But I do think that part of raising a kid now, particularly since it's now increasingly difficult to get bored, there are so many distractions, there's so much low-hanging fruit for your mind to kind of grab at, um, is to teach them to struggle, to teach them to seek out difficulty. And, um, and, you know, to, to go mountain climbing or read Russian novels or just 
getting them in the habit of doing things that are difficult is a tremendously important skill for any kid to grow up with. And that's, that's I think, something which, which, you know, parents, good parents, I think, know instinctively. One of the big thinkers you bring in here, it's a, it's a psychologist or really a psychiatrist that I love, who is Viktor Frankl. Um, some of our listeners may not know Viktor Frankl, but he's someone that thought a lot about these questions of meaning and suffering. And in this case, I mean, he endured perhaps the hardest thing we know of in, in modern history. Can you tell us a little bit about him for those that aren't familiar with his work? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big uh, fan of Viktor Frankl. Um, the title of my book is The Sweet Spot, but the subtitle is The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. And the second part of the subtitle is a shout out to uh, Frankl's famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, where he tells his story. And the story was he was a, a psychiatrist in Austria. He, um, he worked with actually de- suicidally depressed adolescents. And um, when Hitler rose to power, he didn't leave. He couldn't uh, take his parents with him and he wanted to stay with them. And he ended up in a series of concentration camps. And while he was there, um, he's sort of ever the scholar, he asked himself the question, what distinguishes those who persevere, who struggle, who try to survive, from those who gave up, who killed themselves or just, just gave up? And he said it came down to meaning, whether or not um, they had a meaning to their life, whether they had something to live for, some sort of broader purpose. And he, um, he, he, he built this up uh, in, in, in his writing and his thinking. And, and himself, when he left the camps, um, his meaning was his work and his, his family. And he had lost them all. He had nothing to come back to. When, when, and so he, uh, when, he, when the war was over. But he rebuilt. He remarried. He had kids. He had grandkids. He built a, an astonishing career and, and helped many, many people. So to the extent my book, my book itself is a hero's journey, it's the story of Viktor Frankl. Yeah, so he talk more about I think how he would how he would understand meaning in this case. It was the belief in something larger. It was what what do you think he was getting at? So I, I think he was getting at is um, he had a lot of examples in in his book of the specific things that that the fellow prisoners held on to, and I'm not sure he quotes uh, Freud, but there's a, a quote um, where Freud says, and I'm not sure he actually Freud actually said this, but 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 the quote's a very good one where he said. What it is to live a healthy, valuable, thriving life has two components, love and work. Now, the quote doesn't literally mean like falling in love, nor does it literally mean a nine-to-five job. It means some sort of deep, romantic, loving connection with people. And so for Frankel, it's with his family, with his wife. Um, and work means an enduring project. And that could actually be what you sort of get a paycheck for, but it could also mean something like, I don't know, climbing Mount Everest or raising a family or um, starting your own business or something like that. And for Frankel, those were the sort of activities that lent life meaning. Do you still think about Viktor Frankl just in terms of how you live and how you wrote this book? I, I do. I, I think, um, so, so Frankl is one of the, the heroes of the book. The other one is um, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, yeah. who sadly passed away a few weeks ago. And he, he found an idea of flow which is um, being actively engaged in something, where he said, you know, what we really like enjoy out of life um, is, is not sort of simple pleasures, but often it's being, it's being caught up in a musical activity or, or athletic or intellectual activity, losing yourself in it where time goes by. You, you, know, you forget to eat, you forget to pick, the, pick up the kids at school. Yeah. And I think between Frankel and Csikszentmihalyi, 
uh, some really good insights, then later supported by psychological research, on how a good life should be lived. Yeah, Csikszentmihalyi, as you said, kind of really coined this idea of flow and this idea of being so present. Do you think that it's in sometimes difficult problem solving or a little bit of pain or a little bit of suffering in those moments? Do you find that we are especially present? I do. I, I and and I think it's 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 a it's a hard insight to get to. It's very tempting to get caught up in in fantasy and daydreaming, certainly in social media, which has this tremendous grip on us. Yeah. Um, and flow is difficult. It's difficult to get into. And you know, he, many people never have it. They they will tell you they they never get it. But when you do get it, and Csikszentmihalyi's book Flow has these amazing stories of people who spend hours and hours and hours each day fully engaged and fully alive. And I think that there's something of, of great value to it. Hmm. I want to talk about one more big name here, because I think his work also surfaces quite a bit, and this is Daniel Kahneman. You talk about this idea of, of hedonic psychology, and particularly I want to talk about maybe... The idea that for some, there is this idea that a life fully lived will include chapters of suffering and pain that will take us towards a meaningful place. But there are others that also say, I just want to experience pleasure, as much yes. pleasure as I can. I want to be just physically feel good and mentally. Let's talk about those two ideas a little bit. Yeah, Kahneman, you know, he's one of the, the, the geniuses in our field, Nobel Prize winner and well-deserved. And... He studied happiness, and in a series of studies, he pointed out that happiness could mean two things that are rather different. So in one sort of set of studies, you could you do different ways, but one way is you put a beeper on somebody, uh, like an, or an iPhone app that randomly goes off, and whenever it goes off, you say how much pleasure you're experiencing. And then if you, they did this with you for a month, I could at the end get a number as to what is your average moment, how much fun are you having? Now, compare this with a different thing where I just ask you, I say, how happy is your life? How are you doing? Are you happy with it? Is this a good life? And Kahneman pointed out that these two answers tend to be related, but they are also different. There are people whose lives are full of pleasure, and you ask them, how happy are you? And they say, ah, you know, no, I'm not happy. This isn't a good life. I'm unsatisfied with it. And then there are people who say they're very happy with their lives, but day to day is kind of miserable, kind of tough. And so Kahneman asks the question, and this is a great question which has no clear answer. Um, what do we want to maximize? Suppose you had to choose which, which one to try to maximize. Kahneman in the end concluded that the sort of reflected life, the life you think about when I ask you, that's what matters, not day-to-day -day pleasure. But I have friends of mine, including um, Dan Gilbert, who had a big influence on my book, uh, Harvard psychology professor, who says, no, we should just go for the moment to moment. The, the everyday pleasures, that's what you want to maximize. This is really interesting, right? And because it, it puts these different ideas that, that both are which kind of profound and interesting that puts it right in front of us. On, on one level, we're taught, can we just be happy and present in the moment to moment? And that is a life well lived versus just as you say, the idea that things are hard right now, but I know there's a greater meaning or purpose that I'm doing this. And I think that those can be two very different lives in terms of how they are expressed. For example, you talk about um, some people that really have maximized that reflective life as someone like a social worker, right? Who's 
work, and I know some social workers, it is really hard day to day, but they think and they feel they're connected to this much larger idea that they're making a difference in the world. I think that that's right. I think um, another word for maximizing the reflective life, the reflective happiness, is meaning, is meaning and purpose. And if you ask people about meaning and you ask people about happiness, you get very different answers. So the happiest countries in the world are wealthy ones. They're wealthy, safe, prosperous countries. But the countries in the world that have the most meaning are those um, that often are low, are poor, mm. who have a lot of struggle and difficulty. Um, and then you get to, like you say, jobs. So there was a survey done of two million people asking them how meaningful they found their work. And the work that came up on the top were things like being a member of the clergy, being a social worker, being in the military, being a health professional, being an educator. And for the most part, these jobs don't pay that well. They're not necessarily very high status. And they're hard. They're really hard. They involve dealing with people in crisis and trouble. They involve conflict. And yet, and I, th I think not despite that, but because of all that, they are, they, see, they are seen as particularly meaningful. It's so interesting to me. And it just brings about these questions of... What do we do with seeking perhaps some type of balance? What, what kind of a person do we want to be? Do we want to seek the more pleasurable? Do we want to seek the harder, more meaningful? Uh, and I mean, I wonder if this is a little bit of the idea of your book, this idea of a sweet spot, right? What, what is this mixture, this balance that we're all kind of looking for? Yeah, it, it, it is. Um, you know, there's a lot of things you could try to prioritize, including day-to-day -day pleasure and meaning. Even other things we haven't spoken about, like knowing, like truth or beauty. Um, and, you know, if, uh, if, if anybody expects me to answer what the proper balance should be, they're asking the wrong guy. But uh, I think in some way it's just a personal choice. But I, I do think that a too single-minded focus on pleasure it's not only a bad idea kind of morally, it makes you kind of a crappy person if all you care about is being happy, but, um, but also it's sort of strategically a bad idea. There's a lot of research suggesting that trying to be happy, focusing single-mindedly on pleasure, somewhat paradoxically makes people less happy, gives them less pleasure in life. And there's benefits, all sorts of benefits to seeking out long-term goals and seeking out difficulty and trouble and struggle. I think so much of people going into retirement oftentimes and how there's this idea that when you do you're just going to be if you have means you know sipping you know a cocktail by the pool and playing golf and for some that is very happy but for a lot of people what i also hear is that 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 actually didn't turn out to be really what they wanted and oftentimes you hear of some people going back to work i think for example I, i've been reading a lot of stories about really well-known coaches whether they're uh, college football or beyond that thought they were going to retire, but they didn't. They said, I miss the problem solving. I miss, yeah. I miss having to somehow organize a team to go off and compete. And for some reason, those stories really stuck with me. Yeah. I think there's a lot of variation here. So first, we, we have to keep in mind um, that a lot of people have terrible jobs, have yes. jobs yeah. that, that, that are you know, soul-deadening and boring and miserable, sometimes degrading, dangerous, humiliating. And being released from that, to explore whatever they want is, is nothing but, but positive. You're right. Yeah. But, 
But there are people, but I think you're right. I think there are people who get it wrong, who say, oh, my job's so much struggle and difficulty. It's so hard, so much conflict and everything. I would just be happier, you know, sitting by the pool and, you know, saying hi to the grandkids. And often they're just, they're just wrong. Um, high argues, I'm not sure how this has held up, but it's sort of an intuitively clear that, that sometimes people enjoy their, even despite what they think they like, they actually like their jobs more than when they're on vacation. Huh. Their jobs engage them and capture them. And um, I think to some extent, there's a false consciousness where, where we believe that the perfect life is lying by the pool, sipping pina coladas, you know, for a good novel and then, you know, going on Netflix. But actually, that's actually not what works for us. We, we, we thrive off engagement and struggle and difficulty. What happens is that we all need a break and we take the break and we, say, we think that this will scale up. You know, my one week in Aruba, if it turned out to be the rest of my life, I'd be just as happy. But I think sometimes a one-week vacation should just be a one-week vacation, and people are just better off going back to the difficulties of their everyday life. I, and I still, part of me wonders why that is, right? What, what is it about the human, the human condition in which we just constantly want to return to a little bit, just a little bit of suffering, a little bit of problem solving? I don't know. I did, do you have any further thoughts on that? Well, there's a lot of answers, I think. One thing is uh, a sort of very simple answer, which is we evaluate things in terms of, of, uh, of contrast. So, you know, getting to take a day off and sit by the pool after working really hard for a week just feels great. But after you've been in the pool for a while, you just get bored. You get bored and, and the next day is like it doesn't offer any benefits. So we like contrast. And one thing difficulty and struggle does is it, gives, it makes our pleasures so much more vivid. Another thing is we are social creatures. We are social status-oriented creatures. One of the big complaints that people make when they retire is, "No, I'm out of the game. Yeah. You know, nobody nobody takes me seriously anymore." And part of being a social creature means you're you're for better or worse, you're fighting for status. You want to be recognized. You want to be appreciated. But part of it also means that there's a joy, a satisfaction to contributing, contributing to the group, and. If you retire and you don't do this in the right way, you could lose that in both of those things. Paul Bloom is professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and professor emeritus of psychology at Yale University. He's the author most recently of The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning, which we're discussing today. Still to come from climbing Everest to running marathons or even just having kids, why do we choose such painful things? Paul Bloom joins us for part two of this conversation after this short break. And while I have you, one really easy way to support Life Examined is joining the conversation and writing in. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts, I would love it if you could leave a rating and a review. We have a goal of getting to 150 ratings by the end of the year, which means we're just 25 away. So if you're one of our thousands of listeners, we would love and appreciate your support and help. We'll be back after this short break. You're listening to Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. 
We'll continue now with our conversation with Paul Bloom, professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and professor emeritus at Yale University. He's the author of the new book called The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning, in which he makes the case that chosen pain and suffering can actually make us happier. We heard Bloom talk about how he and others, including Viktor Frankl, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi, and Daniel Kahneman, have explored the false ideals of happiness and the connection between suffering and meaning. So how does that translate into our lives today? How much suffering should we endure in the service of pleasure? And does age impact our willingness to suffer more by setting tougher goals to finding greater significance and meaning? From BDSM, spicy foods, and horror movies, to intellectual pursuits like writing a book or learning an instrument, what's clear is that our appetite for the unpleasant allows us to feel good about our lives. We'll pick up our conversation right where we left off, and I ask Paul Bloom about the power of that contrast. One, one thing I want to ask you about and reflect on myself is that um, you, you talk about running a marathon, in this and how it was an extremely meaningful experience. I, I've shared some of this with our listeners. I, I completed a half Ironman. I'm now preparing for an Ironman. There is a tremendous amount of suffering that comes from the training of these things. And yet I, I can say completing these races, cycling through all of the human emotions and crossing you know, yeah. a finish line, surprising myself in tears, remains among the most gratifying experiences in my recent memory. And I know this is something you've thought about as well. I mean, athletes go through this a lot. They do. And I think the wrong way to think about it is to say, oh, overall, this just bumps up your pleasure. If you added up all the pleasure and pain, this is yeah. all going to work out as a plus. And you probably if you do the math, all the training involved doing a marathon, uh, you know, the, the the foods you eat and uh, the getting up oh, in the yeah. morning and everything. This, you know, uh, and and it's just it is probably in some level. If you were just caring about about pleasure and pain, you're better off just sitting at home and not not going through it. But like you're pointing out, there are other benefits, and there are several of them. One is status. I mean, you know, you tell you tell me you tell me did a half marathon, sorry, a half triathlon. I go, whoa, that's impressive. That's that's not nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is mastery, that you could feel a mastery of your own body. I remember, you know, I was never in that good shape, but at a certain point, training for the marathon, I could run for kind of as long as I wanted to at a horribly slow pace, but still I could run and I wouldn't run out of breath. Yeah. And that was just felt so good. And then I think most of all, there's a sense of setting up a goal, setting up a goal and then accomplishing it and, or even coming close to accomplishing it, which is really important, which is really foundational to what we are. Something about that I find so true, especially as we age. I, I, I don't know what this is. I think, you know, there's, there's this feeling when you're young, there's lots of goals you kind of get to without even thinking about it. You graduate high school. If you're lucky or you want to, you may graduate college. You may get a first job. There's lots of firsts. But I find that in adulthood, time begins to stretch out a little bit. You're in a job for quite a while things, those kind of goals uh, don't seem to be as present. And what surprised me, even doing races like this, is is re- just returning to that basic impulse of goal setting and achievement turns out to really work well. I mean, to, and it's something that we can continue to replicate. It sounds like you would agree with that. I would. I would. Um, David Brooks has a book from a couple of years ago called The Second Mountain, where he has a sort of similar insight, talks about... Um, 
this, of course, this isn't universal, but but at least in our culture, many people go through two broad stages of life. And for the first stage, your goals may be handed to you pretty much, you know, um, you know, get married, raise sure. a family, yeah. find love, find work, make a living. But for a lot of people, they get to a certain point, and particularly if you're talking about retirement, where then the, the, the sort of externally imposed goals go away, and you have to create them for yourself. And I think creating them for yourself is really important and really valuable. Can you reflect a little bit further on the importance of money here? You talked about uh, how the Scandinavian countries, for example, always always score so high on these kind of happiness indexes. And there's been some studies shown that after the threshold of X amount of money per year, happiness doesn't change that much. For those that don't know about any of this, can you share some of the research? So the money story is complicated. Um, on the one hand, y you um, it seems that chasing money is actually kind of bad for you. Finding money is important. Saying it's really important for me to make a lot of money seems to correspond with poorer outcomes, more mental illness, less happiness. On the other hand, everybody who's in the happiness business would agree that at least up to a point, money's great. M money, money buys happiness. Not inevitably, but it sure helps. Richer countries are happier than poorer countries. Yeah. You could determine the average happiness in a country just by figuring out its GDP. And richer people are happier than um, than poorer people. And to some extent, it's no surprise. You know, money it could buy you healthcare. Money could buy you a nice, safe neighborhood. It could buy you education for your kids, travel, freedom from various forms of predation. Um, you know, just nice, nice meals and good times yeah. and so so and and times with friends times with family money could liberate you from all sorts of other needs now there is a big debate in the happiness literature and i don't really know what to come where to come down to is is there a ceiling on this some studies find there is in fact early studies by kahneman i found a ceiling of about i think eighty thousand dollars right past that it didn't really matter you know, you, you, then, then you, you have enough money not to immediately worry. G given inflation, call it 110 or 120 right now, and that, that would be the max. Other studies have found that it still keeps going up. There's diminishing returns, but it still keeps going up. There was one study I read that compared millionaires with multimillionaires and found out multimillionaires are just a little bit happier hmm. than, than millionaires. So the money story is, is really interesting and really complex. There's just one other twist on this. I, I got to add, we were yeah. talking about children before. And the original studies that, um, that found that children make uh, you unhappy were done in the United States. It turns out if you do these in other countries, the results kind of change. And the more financial support the country offers for children, cheaper daycare, you know, free, free kindergarten, whatever, um, the, the easier it is to be a parent and the happier parents are. And again, it's not hard to see how money can make a difference in that way. Yeah, that, I, I've read a little bit about that too, and it, it's pretty fascinating. What do you draw from those studies that look at finances and money? Do you, do you feel like there's some big takeaways in terms of how it plays into some of these themes that we're talking about? I think it, it, it speaks to the idea that um, happiness is complicated. It speaks to the idea of pluralism, where... I think it's, it would be a mistake to think of money or anything tangible like that as an end in and of itself. That kind of thought could get you in all sorts of trouble. Mm. But you could think of it instrumentally, that um, there's all sorts of goals one wants to fulfill. I don't know, take running a triathlon. Right. 
which which actually requires some agreed to be able to take time to train some some equipment some travel and so on and you difficult thing to do if you're destitute and that's one example of 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 a million where sometimes money could liberate you to pursue different goals of of value and so i that that's in some way how i think about the money happiness relationship and it's interesting that whether it's a triathlon or I, I think a lot about, you reference them a bit in the book too, for example, mountain climbers, people people like that, where you're creating goals that you, that in and of themselves have no p- purpose or function in the world, right? Like climbing is kind of a meaningless activity in terms of the utility of it. And yet we still imbue it with such meaning and richness and power, which I, I really find fascinating. It it is fascinating to some extent. You know, I, I talk a lot about mountain climbing in my book, and to some extent, it's a little bit of an embarrassment for what I said about what meaning is, which is it has to make a difference, has to be a value. Yeah. Well, who cares? And I think mountain climbing is one of these things that becomes important because people treat it as important. Hmm. It's a sort of um, you know it it's it's it is taken for whatever historical reasons as being a sort of socially valuable pursuit. Um, you know, if I told you I'm climbing Mount Everest, you'd be impressed. I if would, I told yes. you, yeah. If I told you uh, my next six months, I'm going to walk around in a million circles in my study, <laughs> you'd think I, I was deranged right. because nobody cares about that. It's just dumb. And, uh, and so, so there are certain activities that get their meaning because enough people decide to give them meaning, yeah. and, we, and we end up pursuing that. But do you think it can also just be true that we can just for whatever humans with our incredible abilities to fashion meaning out of whatever it is. I mean, any goal that you decide is important can become important. Can that be true too? It can. But I think if you, if you, um, if you think about meaning the way most people do, it would have to have some degree of importance and complexity Mm. and difficulty. No matter, you know, if, if after we end up talking, I go downstairs and kind of eat a donut, I can't say, oh, my God, this is this enormous, meaningful pursuit. I've really done something amazing. It's very hard to tell myself a story because it's no great shakes. It's no, yeah. it's no big deal. Um, I think to be counted as meaningful, I have to register it as, at, at the very minimum, difficult, hard, takes a lot of time. And, but you're right that individuals and, and societies can take things and make them meaningful and probably... The best example I can think about is religious ritual. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a Hindu festival in Mauritius where uh, the men put uh, hooks into their body and then drag a chariot up a hill that's attached to these hooks. And it's, it's incredibly difficult and gruesome and yeah. tremendously meaningful for them. But you know, if, if you don't have the religious context, you just say, that's really arbitrary. Why do you want to do that? But, but societies can take things that one group of people see as arbitrary and imbue them with meaning. Yeah, fascinating and gruesome example. And <laughs> one thing that strikes me about that as well, and I don't know if you would agree with this, which is um, whether it's raising kids, which at a young age, you know, we know that's very difficult, whether it's doing an Ironman, whether it's doing lots of things, you oftentimes complete the mission in some sense with kids. I don't know if that ever ends, but... When you look back, I sometimes wonder if there's this question of thought distortion in terms of how suffering, how much suffering you endured. I mean, the kind of looking back with the rose-tinted glasses, um, childbirth, right? If, if they always yeah. say, if you can't forget about the pain, you would never do it again. 
Do you find that's true? I mean, that, that our, our mind plays these kind of beautiful tricks on us in terms of our reflective qualities? I do. We have, and this is more work by Danny Kahneman, actually. When we look back on an experience, we tend to forget the mundane, boring parts of it. Mm. You know, an, an unpleasant eight-hour flight doesn't feel much different from an unpleasant four-hour flight. They're just the same in memory. We tend to remember extremes, peaks and valleys. And when I think back on my children, you know, I think do think about some very bad times, but for the most part, I think about very good times. Yeah. And in fact, I have uh, pictures lined up on the wall to remind me of them. So whenever I go up the stairs, I just look at the pictures and then they all, you know, come flowing back to me. And, uh, and so in some way, I'm like playing mind tricks with myself to remember that being, parent, being a parent was a great thing. And I think, I think we do that. And I think, um, I think to some extent, this is the mark of a healthy mind taking what's past and what's done and trying to put a good face on it. Hmm. You've essentially just described the, the world of Instagram in about two sentences. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, in many ways, this is how we live now, is creating a little wall of fame that we can look back upon and tell a very nice story about ourselves. That's, I think that's a good insight. I mean, one thing about Instagram, though, and Facebook and the like, is there's there externalities in this. So the problem is you put up your wall of fame, and then I'm looking at yours, and I'm feeling, God, I, my life doesn't seem so good in comparison. Mm. And, you know, we, we tend to look at other people's lives based on the face they present forward to us, sometimes forgetting that... You know, that even when we do this, we also present our best face. And we think that other people are presenting as they really are. And since we know as we really are, it's a lot less impressive. Sometimes it can bring us down. Yeah. One really interesting topic you talk about here are just things like scary movies, for example. Why, why are we attracted to things like scary movies? Oh, I'm fascinated by our love of scary movies and tragedies. Why do we like to be afraid? Why do we like to be sad? You think that's bad for us. Yeah. Fear and sadness are negative, but we, but, but we have an appetite for them. This is part of my book where I get kind of adaptationist, where I talk about um, how the mind has evolved in a, in a way that increases survival and reproduction. And one way it does it is it seeks out worst-case scenarios. We are naturally prone in our imaginations and the pleasure of our imaginations to seek out things where everything goes to hell. Hmm. And that's where our daydreams often go. Daydreams tend to be more likely to be sad than happy when you could fantasize and think about it. We, we obsess, we mull. And horror movies, I think, scratch an itch and the itches. I want to think really hard about what's going to happen when the world goes to hell, when, you know, when, when there's chaos, when there's a killer on the loose, when there's illness. And it may not feel like fun, but it's in some way the mind doing what it should do. It's just scoping out bad things and working on them. So um, I think of horror movies in a way similar to what I think of something like play fighting, which is animals like humans like to play fight because fighting is a good thing to get good at. And to get good at it, you want to practice it. And play is just practice. And similarly, um, a lot of horror movies and negative imaginary experiences in general is a form of imaginary practice seeking out what's the worst that could happen let's think about it for a while it's so interesting so it's almost uh, part of our our evolutionary dna it's a survivalist thing it's if okay what are we going to do if we were presented with this let's take a look at it and feel it out that's that's exactly right. Um, you know, I could easily fantasize about winning a big award, but honestly, it's no great puzzle. I say, oh, thank you, I'd be very happy. 
But so instead, what I do is I fantasize what would happen if, you know, like take a zombie film. I don't think zombies are, of course, you know, unlikely. But what isn't so unlikely is a breakdown of society. No police, no, yeah. no, no government. And then the world is just, is just so dangerous. Let's think about that for a while. And it may not, at some level, it doesn't feel good, but another level it clicks because it, seeks, it, it fulfills a good evolutionary function. Do you find there's any difference between men and women when it comes to some of these questions? I mean, it could be scary movies. It could be the need to suffer more or less. Did any of that come up in your research? You know, I, I, I was looking for it so much. I was looking for the question, why do some people like spicy foods and mm -hmm. others like BDSM? And others like uh, you know horror movies, because you know talking to you, I can't predict. I I know you like extreme sports. Yeah. Other things, I can't tell you. I I couldn't tell whether you like horror movies or spicy foods. And the answer is, there's very little. No, we don't know how to predict it. It's some accident of genes and environment. So there's a slight preference for men, slightly more like horror movies than women, but um, but not. Uh, it's not in a big effect. There are some differences in sexual fantasies between men and women, some of them surprising. But, but it's just hard. It, the science of these things is, is in such a preliminary phase, we just don't know how to answer a question like that. Well, thinking about America, just in, in big terms again, capitalism, I mean, we kind of reflected that a little bit uh, in contrast to maybe more socialist Scandinavian countries. Do you find that America, which always scores low on happiness indexes, is a place in which, in which culturally we can thrive here? Like the systems in place are one that leads us towards a fulfilling life, or is it kind of leading us somewhere else? It's an interesting question. Um, we do punch below our weight for happiness. We're actually, we're by no means an unhappy country, the United States. Um, it's just that given how rich we are, mm. we should be in the top 10 and we aren't. And, um, and it's not clear what keeps us from it. It might have to do with things, you know, very different from what we're talking about, like a, a very high rate of, of, um, of uh, violence, for instance. Hmm. But, but there, there is arguably, um, for some of the population, um, a sort of malaise of meaning, it's been argued. Um, Angus Deaton, who actually was a collaborator of Kahneman and a winner of the Nobel Prize himself, um, argues that uh, for, for instance, for older white men, there's sort of an epidemic of despair. Yeah. And uh, having to do with job loss, having to do with addiction, alcoholism, and you know, high rates of suicide, high rates of depression. And his claim is that for some people, the modern world doesn't afford them the chance for meaningful work and a, and a meaningful life. And I think one of the issues, the general issues of you know, any sort of modern society is that, that while they can often do well at providing people with necessities, sometimes some societies better than others, they often miss out on providing people with sort of fulfilling and meaningful life projects or affording them the chance to get them. And stripped of that, you could end up in all sorts of trouble. And is it just me right now, Paul, or does it seem that the current moment in which we're talking is, is this question is being asked louder than ever before? with these great resignations, uh, people, I think, really finally speaking honestly about what it means to work in their jobs, lack of fulfillment, lack, lack of meaning. I mean, this, to me, feels the conversation that's happening right now. I think it, I think it has. Um, COVID, 
COVID has um, shaken us up quite a bit. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, the great, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of productive, meaningful work, but the great resignation is, is to some extent just people acknowledging that's not what they have. Yeah. They have, you know, low paid, menial, uninteresting, unmeaningful work, and they've had enough of it. And I think the disruption that COVID has, has, has caused, um, has caused many people to rethink their lives. And I don't tend to be a silver lining guy, but it, it, it's the extent this, this pandemic has had one. One thing is people could change their lives maybe in positive ways along the lines you and I have been discussing. Do you think there's such a thing as people being addicted to suffering? Is that, is that possible and perhaps a bad thing? Yeah. Um, I, my book is The Case for Chosen Suffering. So chosen suffering is great. But I don't think all chosen suffering is great. Um, there are cases, for instance, of people who go overboard on self-harm. Um, sometimes self-harm is a cry for help. And that's just unfortunate that people need to do that. Sometimes self-harm has an addictive behavior where you could really do serious damage to your body, um, either by you know cutting yourself or mutilating yourself or just over obsessive over-exercising, yeah. certain eating disorders often, I think, involve people getting a bit too charged up by the idea of inflicting pain on themselves. And that could be um, pathological. There are even some cases in a psychological realm of depressed people who fall into a cycle where they don't want to be happy. They are choosing to be sad. Their depression has guided them to seek out more depression. And, um, and I think, so like anything, this sort of thing, which I think is mostly good, definitely can have its bad aspects. As we begin to kind of close our time, do you feel that part of what you're trying to tell people is that, you know, a little bit of suffering, a little bit of hard problem solving, a little bit of meaning making is, is maybe a good thing? Yeah, um, sometimes a lot. Mm. Sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, I, you know um, I, think, I think difficult projects and struggle, either work, family, sports often, um, intellectual activities, uh, are such a part and parcel of a good life. And we, some of us tend to forget that. Some of us, and I've had my spaces where I forgot, where I tended to forget it, thinking like a glass of whiskey sitting around on the, on the sofa watching TV <laughs> is it's just, that's just the best. And I can't wait for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Forgetting that actually maybe the best is me struggling with writing my book and being miserable about it and, and, teaching classes and, and conflicts and anxiety and struggle, which really provide in the end just a deeper satisfaction. And, you know, so, so I would never tell people whose lives are hard and who, are, who have had horrible things happen, and, oh, you need to suffer more. Hmm. For the rest of us, sometimes we do, and sometimes choosing to suffer more is exactly the trick. I've been speaking with Paul Bloom, professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and the author of a new book, The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. Paul, I, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for the conversation. This was a huge amount of fun. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. And as usual, you can find all of our podcasts wherever you listen to shows, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or check us out on the KCRW app. And after a year and a half, we have a pretty deep collection of archives going all the way back to the early days of the pandemic where we were just figuring things out to more recent shows like last week when we talked about employing the ideas of Machiavelli for women 
I'm Jonathan Bastian, and I wish you all a wonderful day. We'll see you next week. This is Life Examined on KCRW.